Welcome to HCD's Mindset. I'm Michelle Nigella. And I'm Catherine Ambrose. We are on a mission to help you identify what consumer science innovations have a lot of untapped value or are too good to be true. So join us for more curious conversations as we try to make sense of the complex but fascinating world of human behavior. everybody and welcome back to mindset we are so happy to have you here today it is Catherine and michelle back again and we are doing a journal club episode today but we're really excited because we have one of the many authors that was doing this really cool research dan cameron welcome to the show how are you doing today thanks for having me i'm doing well how are you doing doing well michelle you doing great I am doing really well. And I'm super excited for this because, um, you know, we do this journal club thing where we talk about a journal article that comes out that's somehow relevant to consumer neuroscience. And I just happened to be listening to NPR and I heard this story that you were being interviewed and you were talking about some research that you did. And I was like, oh my goodness, I have to contact Catherine. We have to talk about this. Um, and, you know, Catherine, of course, took the initiative and was like, how about we just reach out to him and see if he'd be willing to talk to us about what he did. Um, so, so thank you so much for joining us. Happy to do it. So where <laughs> in the world are you right now? Are you, where are you based? I live in London, Ontario. So it's about two hours West of Toronto. Um, and I work in at McMaster university, which is in Hamilton, which is closer to Toronto, kind of around the Bay. Um, so I'm not there every day because it's a bit of a commute, but uh, that's where I am now. What is your position at McMaster? I'm a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral fellow. So I'm, I'm, I have done some uh, teaching while I've been there, but at the moment it's all research and that's primarily what I do. So I work with Laurel Trainer, who's uh, um, my direct supervisor. She's a, a, a auditory scientist, cognitive neuroscientist, and a developmentalist. So she's an expert in um, music and and how children learn and babies uh, perceive things and all, all manner of stuff related to that. And we've got a great whole team that, that I work with there. I saw that, that the, the institute you have there is is really quite sizable looking at music. Yeah, and there have been a few recent hires in in music interested uh, scientists, and and we've got a uh, uh, the McMaster Institute for Music in the Mind. So this kind of you know group of people there, and we've got this facility, the Live Lab, where we did this research that we'll talk about, which uh, uh, is an amazing facility. So the Live Lab, Live stands for the Large Interactive Virtual Environment. So it's a performance theater. You can you've got a stage, and 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 it's a really nice environment to be in a cozy theater. Um, you can have a, about 100 people seated or a couple hundred people standing. Wow. We, we have concert series there. We have performers. We could have drama. You can have, um, you know, public speakers or, of different kinds and musicians and um, um, dance performances and all kinds of things. And it's a research laboratory. So you can measure EEG, um, so uh, uh, brain waves, and you can measure electrophysiology, heart rate, and GSR, and all kinds of things. We can use motion capture throughout the, the the theater, which is what we did for this study. So a series of kind of infrared cameras around, and then if people wear certain markers, then you can track their movements really precisely. Um, and we also can do like this really fine-grained acoustic control. So there's a whole series of microphones kind of hanging throughout the the theater, and then a dense array of speakers throughout, so you can record what's happening and then project it back. And so changing the, the reverb, you can make it sound like you're in a huge cathedral 
or in like a tiny, tiny dead space. So that's, you can do interesting research there and hearing aid companies have used that space for research. So, so there's a lot you can do there and it can be challenging um, to, to, to work in this kind of thing with so many things going on, but it's, there's a lot of cool opportunities. It sounds awesome. And so just, yeah, just to take a step back, how did you even end up in this space? How did you end <laughs> up there? There's this thing we always like to ask, which is what's your origin story? Yeah. You know, so you're, you're a postdoc at my master, but where were you before? Like, why did you choose this path or how did you fall into this path? Yeah. I think like a lot of scientists, you kind of just find your way there. It's not, a, it wasn't a direct path. I didn't grow up knowing I wanted to do, you know, the <laughs> cognitive neuroscience of music. I didn't know what that was. I'm a, I'm a drummer. Um, okay. I was a drummer growing up. I wondered. And then, yeah. And then I, um, uh, uh, I did a, my, my bachelor's degree was in music performance. So I did a performance degree. It was like, you know, rehearsals and practicing and hours in the, in the practice room. Um, and I, you know, I took some other courses here and there, but it was a very music focused degree. And I had never, you know, I didn't hear about psychology or neuroscience. So that wasn't in my, you know, world at all. But in retrospect, you know, if I think back to what I was really fascinated by, it was about, you know, kind of the internal experience of rhythm. Mm-hmm. That even as a kid, I was really fascinated by, the, you know, rhythms and what you can do as a drummer and how it feels and how that's part of what we enjoy about music. So, you know, I've always been interested in that in some way. And that's really been the kind of guiding central thing throughout my, my research career. Um, eventually, after my undergrad degree, I, I, I picked up a, a pop science book on music in the brain and was just hooked. I thought, "This I can't believe this world exists. I want to get involved." <laughs> Out of curiosity, what was the book? That it was a, a book by Dan Levitin called "This Is Your Brain on Music." So, it oh wow, was a I have it bestseller. over here. Yeah, <laughs> I literally <laughs> have it. Like, yeah. I, I know the book. <laughs> it was a really popular book. Was, I think 2006 or seven. It came out. Um, and it was, I mean, it's very readable. There's all kinds of anecdotes from pop musicians and, and stuff. Um, and I, it, it really hooked me. Um, so I, I ended up, you know, taking courses to make up for my complete absence of science, you know, <laughs> training and uh, did my master's over in the UK. <clears throat> there was kind of a music cognition focused program that I, that I found my way into. Did my, my PhD back in Canada in, in, in neuroscience, studying um, rhythm and beat perception I did a, a shorter postdoc in at Georgetown University in, in Washington DC, and then um, have been at McMaster since the fall of 2018. Um, and so that's kind of one thing led to another, and you end up, you know, I've been studying mostly <laughs> rhythm, but musical movement as well, and different aspects of, of music cognition, music neuroscience. Um, yeah, that's my that's my story. Very <laughs> that's cool. a great story, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. I know Oliver Sacks is what kind of led me into my direction into neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many great books out there that are kind yeah. of like that. Do you still play drums? Oh, not as much as I'd like to. Um, with the pandemic, we've got little kids here. And so we've just been busy. And so <laughs> we kind of put the drums away and we moved at some point. So I haven't, you know, unpacked them, but, you know, I'm still musical. I play the the guitar and piano a little bit. So I, you know, play little songs on the guitar as long as my kids tolerate it and then they just <laughs> tell me to shut up and they want to hear it on the google oh, and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, but i'll you know i'll get the drums out again and might have got musician friends around so we'll, we'll we're all busy but if we find time but you know it's it's been you know i think like a drummer still mm-hmm. in a lot of ways if i'm mm-hmm. listening to music i don't i still feel like the same you know musically the same person out of practice but um, it's funny you bring that up because that's something i've realized i i grew up playing piano, but I also, I'm still a violinist and a violist. And Mm -hmm. so when I listen to certain songs, I can pick out 
the instruments much more easily than my partner who's never played an instrument in his life. Right. And so I'll be like, do you hear that melody? And he goes, what are you even talking yeah, about? Right, like, right. It's, just, it's crazy. And I think about how, you know, your perception does affect your behavior. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really great segue into uh, what we're talking about today. So I'm going to just share the, the, um, link is going to be in the show notes, but the, the title of the study that we're talking about today is the undetectable, very low frequency sound increases dancing at a live concert. So do you mind just giving us a general overview about what it's about and, um, how this research really came about? Sure. Yeah. So we're interested in, music-driven movement, what makes us want to move along to, to music. And that's not necessarily only dance. Like in our society, we think of dance as kind of a formal thing. You're trained to do it, or you've had like too many drinks at the wedding and you just go up and dance or whatever. But it's, you know, I think of dance as kind of along the continuum with just kind of general moving along with music. If you listen to music, you tend to want to bob your head. You tend to, you know, be able to tap your toe. And that's kind of an amazing thing biologically, like that we can do that, right? Like music is, we think of as this auditory stream, a sequence of auditory events and um, relationships between the different sounds. It feels good. It's got aesthetic kind of value to us. Why should it make us want to move though? You know, it's not like if you're listening to people speaking that it necessarily makes you want to bob along to the rhythm of their language. Or if you're reading a book, it doesn't make you want to move when you are enjoying it more. So why, what is this about music that, that does this? And we know some different, um, you know, contributing factors and there's ideas about like the, on the evolutionary scale, like why is this the case, which uh, I'm not an expert in, but, but is interesting. And I, you know, I've been interested in like what aspects of rhythms make us want to move, which rhythms kind of give us a sense of this regular beat that you need to kind of move along. And then what other rhythmic features? It turns out that like some rhythmic complexity, if the rhythm's not too predictable, that's actually best. That draws people into the music. You want a little bit of that kind of funkiness and unpredictability, not too much, but some. Mm -hmm. But another kind of ingredient in this whole thing is bass. And we knew that there was an association between bass and movement from a couple different sources. One, anecdotally, we hear from people or or not personally, but this is out there, especially in like EDM, electronic dance music world, people will talk about... um, you know, the immersive experience of bass, that they can feel it when they're at a, at a, at a performance, at a concert. It's, it's a good feeling. It can feel it through their body. It's part of the immersive kind of aesthetic, um, losing yourself in the music. It makes you want to dance. It feels right. good, all these things. And like, so there's this kind of awareness that there's something about bass and, and wanting to move and, and it feeling good. And then we know from experiments that there's an, there's an association here. So, um, for example, if you have people just tap along with a metronome, a metronome is just like beep, 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 very regular um, sequence of sounds, and have people tap along with that, their, their tapping is more accurate. They line up their taps with the sounds a little bit better when those sounds are low frequency, bass frequencies, compared to high frequencies, ones up there. And that's just interesting on its own, and it kind of aligns with this anecdotal stuff that we know, that there's an association between movement and, and dancing, and then the bass frequencies. And you also see this represented in the brain. So if people are doing that task, tapping along with, with, um, with a, a sequence of sounds, when those sounds are lower, then the brain responses associated with them are a little bit sharper, a little bit faster and more temporally precise. So there's something about bass that's good for motor timing, movement timing. So the, the, our, our motor system in the brain, the movement areas like premotor area and supplementary motor area are involved in timing generally. And um, it's not 
we don't have a full understanding of like why that is exactly, but it seems like there's a relationship there that, okay, our, that system is doing the timing. We want to move along to the kind of timing in music. And that bass, for some reason, seems to have a kind of preferential access from, from the auditory stream to, to our motor system in terms of the precise timing. So that's covering kind of anecdotal and, and yeah. experimental evidence, but it's associated, right? There, there are mm -hmm. associations. We didn't, we didn't have causal evidence. So we wanted to do that, a real world experiment. So people at a concert where we try to like change behavior with this manipulation using dance or using bass rather. So how do we do this? What we didn't want to do is just like, okay, have, you know, these musicians come up, play, and then like crank the bass suddenly <laughs> and see if everyone, you know, dances more. <clears throat> If that is if that's the case, then people would first say, like, what's going on with this music? Why is it just, you know, <laughs> suddenly changing in these weird, you know, ways I don't like? The musicians would say, stop messing with our our music. Or, you know, it, it was a concert first and foremost. Like that was the original thing that like this this uh, musical duo called Orphix, this electronic dance music. They're they're fantastic. They're really good. Um, we were putting on a concert that uh, that they were doing. The audience members were coming to see them. They knew them. They liked that music. They wanted to dance. They were paying tickets to do it. When they got there, we said, hey, do you want to volunteer to be part of science? We didn't tell them what we were going to do. We were vague about it, as we usually are. All they had to do was fill out a couple of questionnaires and wear a little headband, a motion capture headband. So it was just a normal kind of black headband and it had a little marker on top, a little sphere. And the cameras around the, the theater would kind of track those, those markers over the course of the concert. Wow. Now, what people didn't know and was key to our manipulation is we had these very special speakers. And if people listening at home ha might have a stereo system with subwoofers, mm -hmm. these speakers are like sub-subwoofers, like really, really low frequencies. And most speakers can't even produce these, these sounds. And we only turned them up a tiny, tiny bit because we okay. didn't want to be interfering with the music and making people notice like, whoa, something different happened here. We wanted this to be a subtle, real-world effect. And so this is what we did for, we would, the concert was going on. We'd turn the speakers on for two and a half minutes, and then we'd turn them off for two and a half minutes, on for two and a half minutes, off for two and a half minutes, back and forth throughout the whole concert. Then having used the motion capture system to track people's movements, we could just analyze afterwards. Did people move more when they were off or when they were on? Turns out they moved about 12% more when these very low frequency speakers were on. So that kind of confirms our hypothesis. We were shocked at how reliable it was. So um, it was a very strong effect in, in that sense. Is 12% more in terms of when people are dancing? You know, is that a meaningful amount? How much does that really mean? Was that 12% a difference from their own baseline? So like a change? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was all normalized. So on average, like, because some people are like are already dancing a ton. Right, right. I was wondering just, about like, that. You know, yeah. A little bit. So it's an average within that person, you know, mm -hmm. how much were they moving relative to their own kind of average baseline when the speaker, extra speakers were on versus off. And so, so yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, I was just curious when you said you wanted this to be a real life immersive experience. So does that mean that people were also there with other people that weren't participating in the study? And so in a situation like that, are you then working under the assumption that people that, um, that people that also weren't being hooked up to this wire and everything that they were basically, you're assuming that they also were affected by the low base. It's just, they weren't being measured. Um, and then, I, yeah, I would assume so. I mean, we didn't measure them, but it's the, the people who we were measuring, they didn't know when we were going to be turning these speakers on and off. They didn't know that we had these speakers. And we did a follow-up experiment to um, to test whether we, you know, to confirm this idea that they, they were mm -hmm. undetectable, that the manipulation was undetectable. And we did, a, we got a couple pieces of evidence that suggested that it was. First on the questionnaires people did, they, um, 
after the concert, we asked questions like, you know, could you feel um, bodily sensations as part of this like mm -hmm. you know, concert okay. experience? And they said, yes, very much we could. <clears throat> what part of the sound was this associated with? The high treble sound or the low bass sound? The bass sound, they knew this. Um, did it feel good? Did it make you want to dance? Yes, yes, yes. So it confirmed mm -hmm. what we thought were all associated here. People mm -hmm. have an awareness that this is out there. But a key question was, did these um, bodily sensations that felt good, that made you want to dance, um, were they stronger or weaker compared to other similar concerts that you've been to? And people rated it like exactly the same. It was right in the mm. middle. So it wasn't more and it wasn't less. These speakers are not common. The difference. Yeah. That yeah. suggests that they didn't pick up on like, whoa, there's something different at this concert. These really, really low you know, right. speakers or, or that, something just that's an interesting even if they, so that was our yeah that was our first confirmation or suggestion that 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 our our hope which is that this would be undetectable to people was was that it worked we we had but that's not enough to go on so we did a follow-up experiment that we used a, a kind of a, a two alternative force choice task mm -hmm. so we had would have very short excerpts like three and a half seconds of the concert audio with those low frequency speakers and the rest of the speakers exactly the same it had all been recorded through the kind of mixer and things, so we could just play the, the 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 sound back exactly as loud and exactly the same levels and everything as during the concert. We would play these short excerpts four times for a single trial, so we'd play it in one pair once and again, and then we'd play it another pair once and again. They're all the same except for one of those items would have um, the very low frequency speakers on and the, all the other ones would have it off, or the opposite, that it would be off right. and the other ones were on. And the only question was, we didn't tell any of the participants about what the manipulation was or what to listen for, just which pair had something different between, between the two items. And people were exactly a chance. They could not do yeah. this task accurately, including experimenters. There were two, two of the <laughs> authors on the paper did this as well. They knew what to listen for. They didn't know the structure of the trials or anything, but um, they were trying it, you know, honestly, and they were totally at chance as well. And like being in the theater, I didn't, you know, fill out the data, but um you know, you, you couldn't also, tell. Yeah, yeah, you felt like I feel like this uh, brings up so many questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking about this sort of in the virtual office uh, that we have at HCD. And um, some other topics started coming up. One, you know, is this something that DJs would want to use at some point, you know? And it already is to some degree something that horror movie people use, right? So yeah. these sort of sub-threshold, very like low frequency sounds that bring in anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um so what are your thoughts about the use of this in the wild? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not an expert on, on all the uses out there, um, but people have gotten in touch and there's different ideas around this. There's some concerns, like maybe yeah. are these dangerous? Um, yeah. And there's this, you know- um, There's some evidence that it can make you feel sick, right? If it's really yeah. low and very intense. Yeah, and um, like people have gotten in touch, like, oh, there's a wind turbine near my house right. and the low frequency sound, it's constant, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's causing me problems. Um, I'm not an expert on on wind turbines and the sounds there. My understanding of the research, and we cite a, a really useful paper in in our paper, we cite it that um, covers some of like what do we know about low frequency noise? And the main takeaway I I have from that is that yes, it can be can be kind of dangerous. It can cause stress and and even pain if it's sufficiently loud, but that's the true for all sound right. you know there's there's not mm -hmm. necessarily there's not it's not clear that there's anything unique or special about very low frequency sound in terms of its harms or risks or anything like this now in terms of um low frequency kind of uh in in horror movies and things that um 
yeah, that might be related to what we think is going on. Like, how does this work? First of right. all, you know, like yeah. mechanistically in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, okay, you're changing <clears throat> something in the music, but like they can't even tell that it's there and it's changing mm-hmm. their behavior. Like yeah. how would, th- how would this work? Now it's important to step back, you know, and remember, remind ourselves that there's lots that goes on that we don't have conscious awareness of that affects our behavior. You know, we're not, you know, having conscious decisions about all the, you know, of um, choices we're making and all the thoughts we have and all this experience, we're doing so much implicitly. So many right. factors can influence you without your, your kind of awareness of it. And a couple things, um, a couple examples that I'm going to link back to later. So if you, um, if someone bumps into you exactly, or like touches the edge of your, you know, your skin a little bit, very, you know, and you don't know that they're there, Sometimes we have this feeling of like, oh, you, you, you move before you even kind of perceive consciously that, it, that it's there, mm-hmm. right? right. You can have these very like fast Body reactions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like even like reflexes of some kind. Um, and this isn't a, a, a true reflex, but, um, you know, we can react to things before we get the, the conscious kind of awareness of it. Another example is like our vestibular system, our sense of balance, these inner ear structures that detect our kind of head position. If you are getting a little bit off balance in some way, um, then your your postural muscles kind of get the command from our brain to correct for that kind of very, very quickly. You don't have to stop and think like, oh, I'm falling over. Like your <laughs> body just knows how to do it. Right. right? So it's not a consciously uh, detectable you know, process that's going on. So I give those two examples like tactile stimulation and vestibular stimulation specifically because we think they might be involved here in very low frequencies. Mm. And we think that because there's evidence that they are sensitive to very low frequency sound. So in one, uh, uh, in terms of the tactile system, if you're at a normal concert, not these special speakers, but if you span, uh, stand right close to you know, loudspeakers, you can often feel it on your yeah, skin yeah. or like rattling in your chest. We have mechanoreceptors on our skin and in our right. body that detect those like physical vibrations, right? So that that can pick up. Well, I was going to bring that up in the deaf community. They do have yeah. dance parties, yeah. and yeah. it does rely heavily on bass. So yeah. really loud bass music mm-hmm. to be able to dance. I was actually yeah. curious if there was an uh, exclusion criteria that included people that had hearing problems or anything like that. Did you? explore that to make sure we normally do recruit yeah we normally do um have people when they do it like an entrance questionnaire we get just basic demographic information we include you know if they have hearing problems and then we could we exclude them i don't remember if we excluded anyone at this concert on that basis or not offhand um Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've, I've heard from people since this has come out from the deaf, talking about the deaf community that like, oh yeah, they'll, they'll even do things like um, put speakers under the floor, um, yeah, on the floor to yeah. make it more like, you know, feelable that, yeah. that you can yeah. feel it vibrating through your A friend of mine does sign language linguistics and attends a lot of deaf parties and yeah. that's exactly what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm super interested in this <clears throat> and we've done, just started to do some things with, with, um, deaf participants in, in the lab as well and thinking about yeah. low frequencies and, and how to make it enjoyable uh, aesthetic artistic experience. Um, but, you know, sometimes studying a model such as that could give you some hints as to what is also going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if there's people who are, um, and depend, there's different kinds of deafness where the, yeah. the, you know, impairment is, is arising from and for how long, but you can try to identify like, okay, what pathways are processing mm-hmm. certain information if you get responses. So if we have reason to think from other research that like, okay, low frequency sound can stimulate the tactile system. And then that, that can have consequences for um, things like even like um, ratings of the urge to move along to music. So one of the mm-hmm. co-authors on this, Mike Hove, he's an expert in this, this field, does really interesting creative research. Um, he, he did a study where he had like a subwoofer in, in a car 
and people it was behind the kind of seat that people would sit in so when it was on it would vibrate people's fare right. a little bit and um and he had people listen to music and then just rate how much did it make them want to move and this is yeah. kind of a common way to measure what we call groove or the urge to move right. along to music. i love that you guys formally define groove i just kind of <laughs> yeah 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 so it's funny it's a common <laughs> term but then we have like like there's an academic <laughs> workshop in january the groove workshop yeah. <laughs> um yeah so it's it's one of these so funny things. do you believe that there's something special about low frequency because if you do the inverse of that do you think high frequency also has an effect on somebody's willingness or non-willingness to move or irritation like i would imagine <laughs> yeah. like high frequency yeah, you think of like 90s some. 90s electronic music where they always had the sirens right oh um, right <laughs> Yeah, no, it might have other effects. It might be kind of like, you know, get your uh, uh, autonomic system up because it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a jolt. <laughs> but we think that might be what's going on. And this is to come back to like your question about horror movies and its use as well. So we think that like the autonomic system might be responding and that might be getting like, where's that information coming? How does that get mm -hmm. to the autonomic system to yeah. make us say like, oh, something interesting is happening. Get your heart rate going, get, get ready to move. Right. Um, we think that like tactile and, and vestibular might be ways that that's happening, that they're picking up on this extra sensory stuff going on that's so low, so um, low level that it's not getting to our conscious awareness. But that doesn't mean it's not getting through mm -hmm. to other, you know, the autonomic responses as well as our motor system. So that like, especially if you're already dancing and it's not like when we say like, oh, this undetectable effect, you know, we didn't see like, you turn on the speaker and sudden, suddenly someone stands up from their chair and can't help themselves <laughs> yeah. dance. No, they were already dancing and they, they dance with a yeah. little more energy. So we think it's like those systems are turning up the gain a little bit yeah. on our movement vigor. Because that's what vigor. people worry about to some degree, right? Like when it comes to neuroscience coming into their, their real world experiences and, right. and how you can manipulate different yeah. sensory cues, right? right. There, we know there's no buy button in the brain. We can't, you know, change the color of a product and you're going to be compelled to right. purchase it. Um, so we can't compel you to dance. Right, right. And we did, so we didn't measure um, <laughs> like how many people started dancing when mm -hmm. they were not dancing already yeah, you know, yeah. when these came on or anything like that. And it's possible you could try to look at that. But overall, when in a context where people were already feeling good, already enjoying the concert, they're with their yeah. friends, all these like real, it was a real world situation. Yeah, very real. Yeah. And also they might have been world. intending to dance because you're going to a concert, you're going to an EDM yeah. concert. Like yeah. there is almost th that expectation as well is that. Yeah. When no, the, people, these are, this is not a, a random sample of, of the population out there. This is like people who choose to go to an EDM yeah. concert who <laughs> like this, these musicians here and yeah. generally want to dance. Um, so, so yeah, that's absolutely part of like the, the context in which we measure this. So we don't know, for example, like, does this generalize to all types of music mm -hmm. to like, what if it was unfamiliar listeners who like, yeah. eh, they weren't, maybe they didn't hate the music, but they weren't sure about it. Would it have an effect on them? Yeah. Jury's Maybe. out, you know, we, we'd, yeah. we'd have to test that. Those are testable questions. I think there's some interesting things there with um, emotion as well. You know, when we talked about the horror movies, that's almost an easier thing when you talk about autonomic responses yeah. and fear. Um, that that seems to add up pretty easily. But mm -hmm. when it comes to enjoyment, I feel like that's a, it's a harder Separate thing story. to capture, right? Yeah. Well, I think part of it, like dance and enjoyment go together really strongly. Yeah. And we know this from experiments where you see like a really, really strong correlation between people's rating of like, how much does this make you want to move for if they're listening to music? And then how much do you like it? Those things mm -hmm. are like super, super highly correlated. The um, And it's just like intuitively, if you think, is there any music that would make you like want to get up and dance, but you also hate? 
<laughs> you know, like, it's just like, what would that look like? How, you know, it's, it's impossible to imagine. Dancing like at weddings or something, the electric slide or whatever it might be. Yeah, maybe, but like, even then, I guess it was like so much social compulsion. That you were You're like, so oh, much nicer gosh, than I me. I immediately went to Christmas music. I was like, <laughs> right. I'm like, I've heard it. Mariah Carey compels you. <laughs> yeah, but it's typically like, if you heard some music that was like, oh yes, it's got a very dancey rhythm, but like, I, I don't like it. Right. You don't want to dance then. Like in terms right. of internal urge, maybe people say, oh, you have to come dance and then you choose to do it. But that's different right. than like having an urge to do something. So, so and like I, this, this is what we talk about when you talk about groove in the, in this mm. research field, it's the pleasurable urge to move right. into music. And there's some and, evidence like that, you know, people tried to find, like, can you find music that um, people want to, to, um, that they like, but they don't want to dance to? Yes, of course. Any mm. ballad or any like, you know, super emotional song that it's not about the, the feeling of wanting to dance. Mm. Of course, we can find music that makes us feel good that we like and makes us want to dance. Can you find that other quadrant that like they want to dance, but they don't like it at all? And like they yeah. couldn't find this they, in terms of the sample of songs that they looked at. So um, and that makes intuitive sense. So, yes, it's it's an emotional experience. I think the context was not um, was so it's so key to this. They were doing something mm -hmm. that they enjoyed. They liked this music. They were feeling good. And then we made we did something that they ended up dancing a little bit more. And we have some evidence that they would that their ratings were that they liked the music a little more in, in those times. Um, it was a little bit hard to to, to yeah. test. We what we did was we used um, like text message probes. We would text people during the concert and ask them to like just keep in your pocket oh, on vibrate and yeah. respond. And the question was just um, how much were you enjoying the music in the last minute? So we could look at these their responses when the 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 very low frequency speakers had been on in the last minute or off in the last minute. I'm curious, they, just with the idea of concert goers, were you controlling for any substances that they were taking or anything like that? <laughs> didn't, like, no, it's a common question. We didn't we didn't control for that, and we didn't ask about you know mm -hmm. um, illegal drugs or anything. It was a concert, and we have a little bar, you know, um, yeah. that we like uh, uh, a temporary thing we set up. So some people had had drinks before. Yeah, um, I wouldn't call it like just anecdotally my own impression. It wasn't like a wild party. No one. Yeah. Was, Oh, that person's really something going on. <laughs> no one was like wasted drunk or anything like that. It was, you know, it wasn't a, a these are stereotypes, but it wasn't like a, a dance party of, you know, 20 year olds or something like this. It was a bit of an older crowd. Mm -hmm. And like, these are people who like this kind of like niche EDM style. And these artists, like they're popular yeah. and they tour and they've won awards, but it's not like super commercial. Yeah. Music necessarily. So I guess I want to, because I can't believe we're already close to time, but I have one question that I want to make sure that I ask you. And it really goes to understanding how you can make the claim for saying it's causation, because we mm -hmm. always hear, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. We'll preface so, this by, we were on a, a webinar earlier today that was all about like <laughs> mathematics and ethics of causation. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm just curious <laughs> how you make the leap from saying that something was just a trend because there, you saw the low frequency uh, you know, occurring to actually having that effect. Well, the the um, the explanation would be that we turned the speakers on, like we decided right. when they were on. We didn't just sit, say, and this is another approach that would mm -hmm. be interesting, is to like, okay, let's look at just what the musicians were doing, and when they were playing more bass, did people move more? Then that would be confounded by like, well, what else are they doing differently? Yeah. Right. Right. Now, in, in theory, that might be a confound here because like the what the sections in which the, the very low frequency speakers were on were musically different than when they were off. But mm -hmm. we tried to best control for that as well as we could by doing this kind of random sampling on and then off right. and then on and then off so that there's always these. Regardless of, of what's going on in the music. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we didn't, and the musicians didn't know when we were going to be turning them on. They knew we had these speakers, but they didn't have a, um, we, they didn't know our schedule for what we were, when we were going to have them on or off or anything. And they, afterward, they, they reported that they didn't, they didn't know. They had like, I wonder if they, they were wonder, moving more too. That's a good question. Yeah. And <laughs> that was possible. my initial, yeah, that was my initial question was, I was like, is everybody moving more? Like, what's yeah. moving yeah, and possible. grooving? So, so we think if we caused that because we did the manipulation, we changed something and then behavior changed. Mm -hmm. Now, like what you can make of that, because, you know, some people have said like, how do you know it was truly undetectable? You didn't test that so fully in those people that were there. Um, Which is why you had your follow up. Yeah. Yeah, So we do the best we can and we we feel pretty confident about it, but it's possible that some people, you know, would say like, oh no, I hear there's more bass. I'm going to choose to dance more because sure. I liked it. I like bass. Mm-hmm. That would still be an effect. It just would sure. be less maybe interesting in these ways that there's like a kind of automatic. I, I don't know. I still think that that's interesting. I guess yeah. the question I have is kind of like, um, so you talk about all these different possibilities of what is going on. What is it that you guys are planning on doing next? Um, you know, how how much longer are you doing this postdoc and what are your plans as well? I mean, which is a terrible uh, question, but anyone want to hire me? Um the, uh, uh you guys could give me a job later on. No, no, we I, would love to work with you. I, I like being a postdoc. Um it's a shame it's not I enjoyed like being a postdoc too. In the, yeah. in the long term, but um <laughs> No, the, the main two directions we want to follow this up in are nailing down the mechanisms. So I talk about this like, okay, there's auditory, there's tactile, there's vestibular, like which of those are sensitive mm-hmm. to which low frequency bands, mm-hmm. or maybe all of them, which are causing these, you know, um, changes in behavior, or is it all of them, trying to parse that out and separate those. And that'll be, you know, have to be some different uh, kinds of experiments. But that's one direction we'd really like to go. Like Another SMRI one is the, or what? Yeah, you could try to do brain measures. You could try to to measure other effects on those systems specifically and see, and like, it might not be with the concert audio that we did before. Like, okay, you turn it up loud enough so that people, you know, it's detectable at that point. But um, if you can find an effect on like, okay, some measure that is sensitive to vestibular um, system. And there's some EEG measures you can look at with Mm -hmm. this. We haven't nailed this down, but, but that's one interesting direction. The other side of it is the social side. So we know from other work that that we do in the lab and and other groups have done that when we make music together, when we dance together, and it might be about the synchronizing that we've synchronized Mm -hmm. our movements together, we feel socially bonded with the people that we're with. We feel more connected with them. We feel better about them. We feel more as a group. And this is related to what people think might be the, the uh, evolutionarily adaptive reasons that yeah. we have music and dance. There is some evidence about physiological response getting, um, you know, in sync as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So this I, like interpersonal synchrony that goes on and the social consequences for that is like super rich, interesting field. And, and, you know, we've, we've got a part in that and how that played out here, we don't know. So we didn't measure like, how do you feel about the people mm-hmm. around you at, you know, after this, and you can't, we couldn't do that during the concert or not very, you know, in a, in a fun way to say like, okay, stop. How much, how do you feel about that person now that the low speakers were on? How do you feel about them now after the, they were off? <laughs> so it'll be a different set of experiments, but there's other interesting things like, you know, the dance floor is a social environment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you were with people, some of them, you know, maybe some of them you don't know, you can see people, maybe you're watching people, maybe you're moving from place to place. Are some people more kind of infectious as, as dancers where yeah. like, oh, they really respond 
uh, to the to the bass or other musical features, and then people respond to them around them, and you could, you might see kind of this this a social know, norm trendsetter almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can imagine it, you know, socially, just intuitively, um, and you may be like, oh, that friend who's like such a great dancer. They people just end up watching them. Mm-hmm. So like we didn't measure that here, but there might be these kinds of network analyses you can do. Yeah. Okay, and so we don't know. For example, are some people more sensitive to these very low frequencies? And do they kind of have a kind of cascading effect on others in terms like of like location within the dance floor sort yeah. of? Yeah. So you could look at who they're around and, and who's influencing who and these kinds of things. So that would be another, that kind of world of social interactions, the social dynamics of the kind of group Very dancing cool. and the social cohesion piece that, that relates to that as well. That's a whole other kind of side of this. So. So, I could yeah, talk to you our, about this forever. I know. This is yeah, like, yeah. Every, like, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Um, but I do want to make sure that we have time for our game. I did warn you about it right. off, you know, off camera that <laughs> we have a game called React Attack, where I'm just going to be asking you 10 random words. They are going to be somewhat related to what we've talked about today, but um, you're just going to say the first thing that pops into your head. Sound okay. good? Okay. Do my awesome. best. All right. So word number one, sound. Music. Concerts. Fun. Rhythm. Drumming. Speakers. I thought for sure, first I thought you talked about like someone giving a talk. Like a that's, that's good. Say it. Say speakers, it. I would say loud. Dancing. Party. Music. Feeling good. Raves. That's Raves. Okay. Um EDM. EDM. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's next, that's the next word. Waves. Yeah. <laughs> Volume. Loud. And the last one, drumming. Ah, rhythm. I guess I said the opposite too. <laughs> and actually, we have one more question for you. Sure. Are you a dancer? I like to dance. I'm someone who moves a lot with music. I can't help but bob my head if I'm listening to music I like. I like to dance. I'm not trained as a dancer, um, but and I don't get to do it very often. But I don't do you have a favorite type of much. music? Favorite type of music to dance to? I don't or in know. General. Anything that um, I like all kinds of music. I like you know finding out about new styles. Um, um, but Afrobeat, Afrobeat music. So. Mm-hmm. You know, from like Fela Kuti in the '70s. And yeah. 70s, started the that. I find that music like just so, you know, uh, in a dancing way, kind of draws you in. You can't help, I can't help but move along with those. They've got great, interesting rhythms, you know, complex African um, rhythms, like the African music tends to have really rich rhythms involved. Yeah. And there's these like repetitive driving bass lines that just like the whole thing sucks you in. So I I would say that. So thank you so much for joining us. My final question for you today is if people wanted to contact you as well as I want to make sure that we highlight all the other authors and amazing people that were involved in this research. I know you were uh, the lead author, but there's a whole team behind you. Um, Where could they find you? Where can they find out more about your work? Yeah. So, I mean, this paper got a bunch of press, so you could Google it, you know, low base (laughs) and my name or something like that. and, And people will find some information about it. You know, I'm on Twitter. We'll see how long Twitter survives. I don't know what's going on. Are you hopping over to Mastodon? I, I started, I opened a Mastodon account. I haven't been active on there or looking. There's at a lot of there. neuroscientists made the jump. Yeah, yeah. It looks like academia is kind of moving there. And then post or post news, like this is another yeah. one that, um, that is out there. So, I mean, on Twitter, I'm Dan underscore Cameron. So you can find me there. 
Yeah, and my colleagues, I don't have their handles uh, uh, at, at hand, but it is very much a team effort, you know. Dobri Dotov um, is a real expert in human movement and measuring it, so he did all the motion capture analyses. Erica Flayton, a grad student in the lab, she, she was a, a critical part of that as well. Dan Bosniak is the technical director of the live lab, and he had this, you know, he, lo he, he knows these musicians, and so he had that connection there, and he, he had a connection to the sound company that lent us these um, speakers. Mike Hove, I mentioned, is a real expert in bass and groove, there's an urge to move. And then our, our fearless leader, uh, Laurel Trainer, who, you know, secures the funding to do all this expensive research and, and really is a, 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 a wonderful guiding force through the whole thing as well. So awesome. we have a great team. Yeah, very cool. We really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for jumping I have on too. Yeah, no problem. I've enjoyed it. Nice to meet you both. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thanks all so right. Much. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. For more information or updates, follow HCD Research on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at HCD Research Inc., and at HCD Neuroscience. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to rate, review, and follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and stay tuned for more curious conversations.